The following is a Frank R. Wilson presentation. Welcome to where we explore the magic of music from the movies. From the golden age to present day, we've got it covered. So sit back, relax, grab a popcorn, and relive your favorite movies through music. Welcome to What's the Score? I'm your host, Frank Wilson. Let's have a look at the shelf of CDs and see what we play today. Recognize that music? It's one of our guests' favorite cues from one of the many scores he remastered in the James Bond series. Now we're going to spend this episode of What's the Score exploring the music of James Bond and the work our guest did in getting these scores remastered and including previously unreleased music from the series. So once again, please join me in welcoming back to the program Lucas Kendall. Hi, Lucas. Hello. Uh, this, this is a particular... Favorite topic of mine. I've been a, a lifelong James Bond fan, and I think one of the things that always uh, drew me to it was the music. Uh, my favorite composer is John Barry, and that has no doubt in due in large part to the fact that I was a big fan of the James Bond series as well. So this this was a real big deal to me when this came uh, came came out. So uh, my first question about this is that how, how did this project come to you, or did you go to it? Uh, I went to it, I chased it, and I, I will tell you the story. So this was, I think, um, in the fall of 2003. Okay. And I had been producing CDs on Film Score Monthly for some time, and I knew the licensing people at MGM. And I had always asked them, hey, what's going on with the James Bond soundtracks? because the James Bond soundtracks for the early films from Dr. No through the Living Daylights and including Goldeneye, I think, were part of a licensing deal um, with EMI. And EMI was also Capitol Records. EMI has sub subsequently been acquired by Universal Music, but at the time they were their own company. Mm -hmm. So EMI had the rights to the Bond soundtracks. And I always would ask MGM, because I knew that deal was going to be expiring because they told me, I said, is, are they, what's happening with those? Are they coming back to you? And at one point the licensing guy said, no, I think we're going to renew with them. And I think they're going to, they want to do <clears throat> new releases. And I said, oh my God, that's like the mother load. Do you know what they're going to do? Are they going to like improve them? Are they going to add previously unreleased music? I don't remember the exact conversations. But somehow I was able to beg for an introduction with the people at Capitol Records who were doing this. So I, I went to a meeting at EMI Capitol, which at the time uh, was on Wilshire. I think it was the Variety Building at the time. Anyway, so I went to this meeting and I met with three of the executives there. And I sort of told them who I was and what I did and what I knew how to do. 
and said, you know, what are you guys going to do with this? And they said, well, we're only really budgeted to just reissue the old albums. Mm. Said, Ugh. I said, well, all right, what were you going to spend on? Them? And I think the answer is like, well, $2,000 each. I said, okay, guys, for $2,000 each, I'll do it and I'll get my guys to do it and I'll give you the good long versions that sound better for the same amount of money. And they're like, well, okay. <laughs> and, you know, it sounds good to us. And MGM said, okay, that sounds good to us. Because I also, part of the story is that I knew where those master tapes were because one of the guys at MGM had at one point given me an inventory of the tape vaults at Abbey Road in England. Mm -hmm. And he said, here's all this stuff that they have in this vault because a bunch of it belongs to us and we're trying to get it to get them to send it back to us. And I saw on that manifest, like they had Thunderball. They had, basically they had Thunderball, uh, You Only Live Twice, um, uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, uh, Diamonds Are Forever, Live and Let Die, and they also had they had the man with the golden gun, and they had something from the spy who loved me, but it was not clear if it was the film performance or the album performance. And they had for gold for Goldfinger, they had the uh, British version of the vinyl that had extra cuts compared right. to the, so. So I knew they had at least those, <clears throat> and, and I knew where they were. So they said, okay, and. The first step was that they had their guys at Abbey Road buy a hard drive and transfer these tapes onto a hard drive. In the end, they spent more than to the $2,000. I spent $2,000 on the mixing engineer and the mastering engineer, but they did step up and they spent money to transfer these tapes because that can be, it's not, you know, it's not free. It's not a, it's not a fortune, but it does cost something and they have sure. to pay for it internally with their own sound department. So they transferred these things to a hard drive and they sent it over to me and I booked uh, sessions with the mixing engineer who I was using and I still use from time to time. His name is Mike McDonald at a, a facility called Private Island Tracks at the time. Now they're called Private Island Audio. And we just did our usual process of going through them and I would bring the CDs in uh, as references for what the mixes are supposed to sound like. And I would record in the audio straight off the movies themselves to make sure that editorially everything was using the correct take and that the segues were, were correct. Uh, they were how they were meant to be. And over like three or four weeks, I put them together very quickly, just one after another. Wow. And the only thing that was a little frustrating is that we were going to do The Man with the Golden Gun as well. But they basically said, look, kid, we spent too much money and you're only going to do through Live and Let Die, and I was not in a position to argue. So I said, oh, okay, you know, I had my You're hand. killing me. Oh. Don't worry, it'll get done one day. Um, I don't know how or when, but I'm just telling you what happened, because I thought you would yeah. want to know. Because that's interesting. One of my questions further on down my list is that, well, you know, do those tapes exist? And so you're uh, confirming we'll that to, they do. We'll get to that. Yeah. All right, so... <laughs> so <laughs> well, we'll have to play some music in between here, too. Don't, oh, don't, uh, oh. don't give it all away yet, but... Uh, all right. In fact, why don't, why don't we break in? Why don't we why don't we play a couple back to back? Uh, and these aren't necessarily. Uh, I mean, I'm you, you did. They were on the reissues, but they were also previously available. Uh, the first one from Rush for Love is the uh, the theme that John Barry wrote called 007, which I'm guessing was kind of in response to his not getting the royalties for the James Bond theme, so he wanted to come up with his own, uh, and and that was reused several times in the series. 
And then from Goldfinger, we're going to play uh, On Jobs Pressing Engagement, which is, what else can you say? But just, you know, it's just classic. It's classic John Barry. It's classic James Bond. So uh, let's listen to these two cues back to back to back, and then we'll we'll come back with Lucas and learn more.
So I guess so. The, the the tapes weren't at Pinewood; they were at uh, Abbey Road. And one thing that you did leave out that I found interesting in your list—I'm sure you know what's coming—Moonraker. Uh, now, of course, that was recorded in Paris. There's been lots of debate in amongst the James Bond aficionados and those sorts of things about: Do the tapes exist? Do they not exist? Someone said they saw them. Someone said no, that nah, they don't exist. Is that uh, is that something that you can put to rest uh, that particular? Fortunately, topic? I can't uh, because I'm really not. Uh, you know, I'm really not involved with it. Um, I'm sorry to say. I, I, yeah. I, so I sort of only know the same rumors and 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 such that you do. Or were, were, uh, did you start out? Uh, being a particular fan of the series, or in particular, at least since John Barry had done so many of them, were you a particular fan of his? Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, it was one of my my earliest movie and movie music memories is when they used to show those on ABC. Right. And uh, especially You Only Live Twice. I remember it was one of the, it might have been the single, the, it might have been the first thing that we ever recorded on a VCR when we bought a VCR. This is like, you know, 1984, 83, very early. Right. So. You know, we'd record. We had really crummy reception. We didn't have cable TV, so I'd record "You Only Live Twice," and it was it was a portal into this world of, of glamour and adventure and this glorious, glorious, beautiful music. So yeah, it's a, it's um, I'm I certainly fell under the spell of those films, especially the early films and John Barry and and uh, so yeah, I guess I could you could say I'm a lifelong fan. And it, it doesn't sound to me like there were a lot of, you know, I was expecting you to tell me a story about all these hurdles you had to overcome in order to do this. But I guess compared I to a lot, a lot of other projects, music, right? what's that? I was going to, but you wanted to play some music. 
Oh, okay. Well, all right. Well, then let's talk about hurdles. All right. <laughs> Tell so me what about happened that. Was that as you're probably more than well aware is that they used to abridge the the cues on the vinyl, and and the cues were all out of order, mm-hmm. and um, I had some restrictions. They said you can't use any vocals because you'd have we'd have to clear the vocals with the singers, and we don't have time for that. And I, that was very disappointing because you're probably aware of that. 20th anniversary Bond, or maybe 30th anniversary album that they did that had like the uh, the Dionne Warwick version right. of, of uh, Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and things like that. So I was told, no, you can't use any of those. And I said, okay. And I was just not in a position to fight. Yeah. Because we, and I'll be, you're going to be annoyed again. We had a, an alternate version of the Diamonds Are Forever main title song, which huh. is longer. It has an extra verse. I've heard that. I have yeah. heard that there was an extra verse that wasn't included in the final product. Okay. Yeah. And so that you that was actually on tape as well. Well, it's on my computer now, but I can't give it to you. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, so there's a longer version of that. Um, so I had these restrictions, and but I really had the problem is I, I, I think I decided for Thunderball and You Only Live Twice, I, I needed to leave those albums uh, more or less as they were. And I would just put the, the, the previously unreleased music at the end because that's what we had done with The Living Daylights, which I had, been, I had worked on that a few years earlier through knowing the people at MGM when they were doing albums through Rika Disc. But I did think for, for only uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service and Diamonds Are Forever, I always thought those albums, I'm, I mean, I'm sorry, I thought they sucked. You know, they were all out of order. They did. They only had the source music. They didn't have the music you really wanted. So I said, let me just put these all in sequence. And for Diamonds Are Forever, it all fit. And then I had some alternates that we put at the end. And for Honor Majesty's Secret Service, I had to leave some music out because it didn't all fit on one disc. Wow. So I had to cut it down a little bit. I have the, I have the rest. Someone will get to it one day. Yeah. But I it's, said, let me put it in film sequence and make it more of a program and make it make sense chronologically. And then they said, no, you can't do that. I said, hmm. oh, uh, yeah, I, I was like, why? And they said, well, no, it has to be, it has to be the, the old tracks first, and then it has to be the new stuff after. And I said, okay, well, let me just reshuffle them, and then at least people on iTunes or whatever we were doing at the time, they could put them back in the order that they were meant to be. Yeah, I'm trying to remember, didn't you put in the liner notes, was there, wasn't there a suggestion for if you want to play these in sequence, here's the order you would play them, or, or I've seen I that somewhere. Remember, I haven't looked at the liner notes in 15 years. Uh, but what happened was very late, very, very late, they, they said, why are the times different? Why, is the, why are these selections different? Because even though I had reordered them in the album sequence, I kept adding the, the adjacent cues so that it would still make sense chronologically. It's a little hard to describe, but I, I snuck in all this extra music. And very late, they said, hey, why'd you do that? And you can't do that. And I sort of said, well, I have to do that. It's the only way it can be done. And I, I remember there was actually like a weekend when I was possibly under the impression that they weren't going to allow it and they were going to undo this three or four weeks of, of frantic, desperate work that, that I really had my heart set on. And then on Monday they said, okay, kid, we'll let you do what you want to do. So that was a very upsetting call. And I just remember like kind of having to manage up, if you know that expression. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. So, um, but then it came out, everybody was happy. And then they kept asking me, what about the rest? And, and those questions, what about the rest have not stopped, even though I don't really have an answer for anybody. It, um, what you were talking about and an example, I think of what you were trying to describe was what I think what you did with the journey to Blofeld's hideaway. Exactly. That's one of the, you, you, you inserted some extra music that that wasn't on the original uh, album well, in the original album it there's a there's this edit from one piece of the one section of the movie to a completely different section of the movie right and they just left out all this good stuff so it's kind of a jigsaw puzzle and i don't remember all the details now but um i i sort of reshuffled that jigsaw puzzle so that you the astute bond fan at home could in itunes put it in the proper sequence <laughs> and we made it sound much, much better, which I was very proud about because those albums, uh, those masters were very old and they had been mastered for people's sort of crappy, tinny old vinyl turntables and they sounded very pinched and, and bad. And uh, we were able to use the original, let's see, it was three tracks for Thunderball, four channels, I three, I think three or no, it was, you know what, I can't remember. It was well, three for You Only Live Twice, four for Under Majesty's Secret Service, because the Moog, the synthesizer, was often on its own channel. Uh, and the Louis Armstrong song was on an eight-track tape, not the eight-track that you put in your old Buick, but uh, a one-inch eight-track professional audio format. Wow. And then Diamonds Are Forever was on one-inch eight-track, and that sounded glorious. And then you only live. Uh, excuse me, live and let die was on sixteen track. I did not have the Paul McCartney song, and I would not have been allowed to touch that even if I did. Yeah. And then for the Nancy Sinatra song, we only had the backing track. We didn't have Nancy's vocal, which was infamously stitched together from like a dozen or more takes because she kind of she was not uh, she was not a great singer, and uh, they had to piece together that, different takes in order to make one final one, as I recall. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they would they would not in those days splice the tape together because they didn't have digital editing. But um, wherever Nancy's solo vocal is, we didn't have it. For Thunderball, they had to dig up some stuff in their American vaults, and some of it was uh, some of it was not in very good shape because it, I think it had been transferred for the previous uh, for that twenty minute suite on the on the thirtieth anniversary album. Mm-hmm. So there was, there was a little bit of frantic, can you guys find this thing for me? And then on, on Honor of Majesty's Secret Service, there was some stuff missing. And I said, guys, it's missing. Well, you know, where is this? Where do you have it? Because I could see, you know, I'm, I'm not dumb. I could see that the barcodes were missing a barcode number. I said, guys, what happens, you know, 684389? You're giving me 388 and then 400. Where's 38, you know, or whatever, the, whatever numbers I just said are probably wrong because I'm not thinking about them. But they said, oh, there was some water damage. And yeah, yeah, we have that right here. We didn't know if it was playable. I said, well, can you please try and find out? And they said, okay. So they had to transfer <laughs> that additional role for me. Wow. These are, the, these are the things you go through. And it ha happened, as I said, in, uh, in like three or four weeks. And, uh, and then at the end of the day, I got paid like, I think they just cut me a check for 10 grand. And then I proceeded to pay like $9,996 to these vendors <laughs> who I hired, and I was left with, you know, like 4 or $40. But I didn't care. It was really a passion. It was a labor of love, it yeah. It sure was, and it was really great. And, and that music meant so much to me. And I think we did them 
uh, correctly and, and, uh, and they sound great and, and we can all enjoy them, which is really the point. Yeah. You know, I, I'll get into this after we play a couple more cues. Cause, uh, cause I, I do want to talk some more about some of the things you brought up. Uh, you chose from Thunderball street chase and, uh, and from the only live twice flight at uh, Kobe dock. Now these are two great cues and, and street chase, if I recall correctly, was not on the original album. So that was great that that was to be included. Um, Anything you want to say about those those cues? Well, yes, for Street Chase, I we did have the earlier version of that because the, here's the uh, the Bond deep trivia. So John Barry originally he didn't want to do a title song called Thunderball because he thought it was an awkward word for a song, and he wanted to do a song called Mister Kiss Kiss Bang Bang that had become the Japanese uh, like uh, catch name for for James Bond, right. and they and they did. And then very, so he wrote the score using this melody for Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is a waltz, it's in three. And then very late in the day, they said, no, 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 that's not gonna work. You have to do a song called Thunderball anyway, uh, after all. So he did, and they recorded with Tom Jones, but he had to rewrite sort of the latter half of the score, um, or he had to write rewrite some key sequences in the score to use the Thunderball melody and not, the Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang melody. And for the action music in Street Chase and at the end of the movie, he was originally going to do it with the Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang theme. So I do have an earlier version of Street Chase that will one day hopefully be included on you know, a proper two-CD Thunderball re-release by some other label. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's really Fascinating. cool. Fascinating. It goes da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So it's the same idea, but it has that... It doesn't use the W007 theme. It uses the Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang theme. Huh. And, and then of course, and that works. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. For fighting Kobe Doc, it's just one of the iconic Bond moments when he's fighting these bad guys on the roof and then the helicopter shot pulls all the way back and, and the music soars with, uh, with, uh, with the theme for the movie. Yeah, well, let's, uh, let's have our listeners enjoy these two cues uh, from Thunderball, a cue called Street Chase. And from the only live twice, uh, fight at Kobe Dock, both cues written by John Barry. Thank you. 
you've been talking about how good they sound. I couldn't agree more with you. It seemed to me that you did, maybe it was because of original source material, and again, I, I don't know what I'm talking about. I just know that I liked it. Maybe it was because you were dealing with original source material when you remastered them, but they, they seem to have more punch is a lack of a better way of saying it. Was that something on purpose that you well, did something exactly, in the mix? It was exactly because we had the, we literally had the first generation tape, the tape that was on the machine at the scoring stage. And so you don't have any tape hiss. It's, you have a lot of clarity and it was, a, those are very stable tape formats so that they last a long time and they don't degrade. Uh, sometimes when they're on magnetic film, they, they tend to turn to vinegar, they, they, they oxidize. Mm -hmm. But this particular tape format doesn't, uh, doesn't oxidize as, as badly. And they must have been stored well. So we, had, we just had this great, crisp, clear sound, and we were able to, to do a very basic, straightforward mix. Um, it's, very, it's very easy and simple when you're when you're doing if when you have a three channel recording which is to say it's it, they used to call it a deca tree because it was um the microphone setup that deca records used where it's literally there's a microphone on the left of the orchestra there's a microphone on the center and a microphone on the right and the violins are in the left and and you have woodwinds and and uh, percussion in the in the middle and then on the right it depends on the particular orchestra i think in the bond scores the brass would be in the right I can't remember, but it's just this great clear sound, and then you can fold it down to just the left and right channel for home audio. No, oh, they do. They they just sound spectacular. They really do, and it was one of the things I was most impressed with on it. You um for uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, what a goldmine this was because there's a lot of people that feel like that that was the best score that John Barry ever wrote uh, for a Bond film, and of course the way he tells it because of George Lazenby's uh, lack of experience in acting and that you know, he didn't think too highly of his acting in it, that he needed to, to kind of punch up the movie a little bit to give it more of a Bond feel by music since we were having a different actor. So he wrote, well, goodness, I guess obviously more than 80 minutes of, uh, of music, which was quite a bit for a Bond film. And uh, the one you chose, I couldn't, couldn't agree with you more. It was, maybe you know something about this. Uh, Dusk at Piz Gloria was the cue that you chose, and, and yet it's not, I don't believe, heard in the film at all. And yet it is just, and it gives me goosebumps just thinking about it. It's a beautiful piece of music. What's, what's the story behind that and, and your choosing it? Just something I really liked. I was just enchanted by it. It was meant to underscore the sequence when Bond sneaks out of his room uh, when he's uh, with Blofeld at Piz Gloria. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they dropped it. They dropped most of it, which is which is their prerogative as filmmakers. But um, I just loved uh, loved what he wrote and and figured, you know, it's funny. I went to iTunes and I saw like what you can see in iTunes, like what your most played tracks are. Right. And for whatever reason, this was like the most played track of mine. I said, well, I must really love it. So I figured <laughs> I'd, I'd ask you to play. Yeah. Well, and and it. Um... What a fine! I mean, I, I can't. I wonder what was it like when you. I mean, I don't know if the if the cues on the on the tapes were you know named or if they just had the M one three two or whatever the codes were. But, but what was the feeling when you when you oh, what the heck is this and started playing it? I mean, well, that must have been quite a oh, it was, a moment. Yeah, it was it was really rapturous. You know, it was a big uh, big 
big happy nerd moment. And you're right, <laughs> it's only had, uh, had the numbering system, which is, they are codes, but they're pretty easy to figure out because the first number is the real number in the film. Right. So if it's 8M2, it's the second piece of music in real 8, which means it's probably around the one hour or, you know, the 70 minute mark of the movie. Okay. Or maybe 80 minute, actually 80 minute, because those production reels would tend to be 10 minutes long. So uh, this was, uh, so it had no title. It was that title your choice then? I do believe I, yes, I think I did title the tracks and okay. I tried to keep the titles as straightforward as possible because I always disliked when people did cutesy titles, especially if they were some producer coming in years later trying to put their own stamp on it. I thought that that was inappropriate. So mm. I just tried to come up with very simple titles. Well, and I think it's a, you know, it's, it was a gr great idea on your part. I think it, it fits the, fits the cue perfectly. We're going to play that one. That's a, a, a cue called Dusk at Piz Gloria from Honor Majesty's Secret Service. And I'm going to take host privilege and add one more to it because this cue in the film was a big favorite of mine that I was so happy was included. And that's a cue called Gumball Safe. And to me, it's a, it's a, it's a, an incredible example of how music can be used to enhance a scene. It's actually, if you're just watching it, it's really a pretty boring sequence of events that happens, but the music helps tell the story a little bit about some of the tension that's going on kind of behind the scenes and this running down to the wire of being able to get this information. And so, and I, I was so happy that you included that. And uh, so it's a great cue as well. So gumball safe and does get piss Gloria, both cues from honor majesty secret service Written by John Barry. Thank you. 
Did you uh, did you ever hear from uh, from John Barry or any of the other uh, composers after these were released? I did not. Wow. And of course, they and they weren't involved in in any way, shape, or form because you were doing this so quick anyway. Uh, they weren't, uh, and I have mixed emotions about that. I um, I think I did what I had to do to get it done very quickly, and who knows? John Mary might have said, "No, no, send it to me for approval," and then he might have said, "Gumbold's safe. That's boring," and then you and I would be disappointed. <laughs> yeah. So, um, on the other hand, I, I do feel a little embarrassed to have been poking around on their art. You know, it's not my art, it's their art. So it's a little obnoxious and I have mixed feelings about that, but you do what you got to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and, uh, again, I think it makes perfect sense what you had said uh, in the previous program about the not getting them involved is not because you're trying to be nasty or something, but it's just, it's be a much smoother process if we just kind of keep this a small group of people working on it and we can get it out and get it done well. Um, Diamonds Are Forever was another film that was loaded with music uh, and, an, and a horrible album that was mostly just source cues. I mean, it wasn't hardly anything that was in there of any consequence. So this was a real uh, welcome for Bond fans to get Diamonds Are Forever in its complete form like that. Uh, the track you chose, however, was something, I, th- I if I recall correctly, was on the original release. I'm not sure. 007 and County? Yes, it is on the original release. It sounds much better on our version. It's much I agree. And then it's yeah, it it it's got a lot of punch to it, and it uh, it does sound spectacular. I'm I'm also this is the only other time I'm going to take host initiative. I'm also going to play something I was so happy that got released on the, on your uh, reissue, and that's basically the gun barrel and the and the uh, pre credit sequence, which is a nice long cue that uh, that accompanies I think almost the entire uh, pre credit sequence. And I thought that that I was so happy to see that music included. Uh, it was interesting because I, it, the other thing I've heard from these remixes that you've done is I, I think, again, because you were dealing with source material, I guess, I've, I've started to hear instruments or hear things that I never heard before in the previous uh, issues. Did, did you find that happening to you too? Is saying, oh, well. Yeah, that's I did. And, and we tried to, you try to recreate a mix so that it's how the music is meant to sound and you use the old album and you use the film as an as as your guide but the clarity yeah it, it becomes more transparent because you're listening to the orchestra and you're not it's not obscured by tape hiss yeah so i think that's what happens and that's that's uh one of the, the pleasurable aspects of when you you have access to these original masters mm, fabulous let's let's hear these two these are from diamonds are forever 007 and, and counting and then uh, the gun barrel and pre-credit sequence right.
So do you think we'll, uh, there's a chance now, not that you would be involved in it, but there, there is a chance that maybe more stuff gets released at some point because at least it is available and people know that it's available. I hope so. I, th- I think there's a good chance. I know that La La Land Records has done albums of a couple of the David Arnold scores, um, the last couple of years. And that, was um, because David Arnold was able to to sort of personally ask the people at Eon, hey, can these guys do it? And so then we get Eon involved with MGM, involved with La La Land Records. And I think it's fair to say that they would like to do to as many as they, they can, but they have to go slow and they have to respect that people have other priorities, especially like producing the new Bond movie. So it's just um, it's just going to be a process, and I, 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 that's the honest answer. Without leading people to believe anything is in the works, that's not because that wouldn't wouldn't be fair. I don't no. want people bugging them. You know, they're they're doing it as as best and as fast as they can. Well, now, would you say that the that this package was it? Um, well, I know it was personally successful but was it basically the reintroduction of these all these soundtracks at once was it would it be deemed a success by the by the record company by the studio i have no idea because within a few months i think two of the three people who i had done this with were gone oh wow they were they were laid off or there was some sort of downside i don't know what happened or they had transferred so i kind of lost my contacts over there even to say hey did those work out for you so i really don't know Huh. And we have no we have no sales figures or anything like that, like sold five thousand or one thousand or whatever. I don't. I'm sure there there are such things. I also don't really care. You know, I feel feel like <laughs> I got done what I wanted to get done and 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 um it wouldn't it's not like they'd pay me any of that money. So I, I just didn't care. You know, I knew that it, I, I yeah, I No, I, I understand. I'd done the service for Bond fans that, that I thought I had an opportunity to do and the service for my own uh, passion for these movies. And the uh, Bond fans owe you a debt of grat- gratitude, believe me. And uh, I think they'll be anxious to, to hear this program and hear some of the behind-the-scenes stories on, uh, on putting them out. What, um, kind of switching gears for just a brief moment, where, where, where do you see the future of the film music uh, industry? Because it, it seems to be changing a little bit. Uh, any any thoughts you have on what the future holds for, you know, with the the advent of computers and uh, and uh, computer generated? I mean, I know there's been a couple of movies, I guess, have even not even used orchestra. They've just had the the whole scores produced by a computer, so to speak. Do you do you have any thoughts on the future of the industry as a whole? Well, it's not just a few. I mean, I think that's probably the preponderance of television music. Certainly, is just being done by people on their computers because you have these sample libraries and these emulators and, and um, it's, it's transformed how people create movie music and how they conceive of it and how they write it. And not, not always for the better, but sometimes, sometimes it's, it's very successful. So 
Um, it's always going to be changing. I think a lot of the change has already happened. Um, I'm not a fan of it the way I was. I don't find that the, the film scores for the big uh, adventure films written today are in the style that I have any affinity for. They're not what I grew up really loving. Um, but that it's not, I'm not eight years old anymore. So it's not for, it's, I'm, you know, I had my time to, to, to spend with, um, you know, these things and it's for new generations to discover like the Avengers movies and to like that music or not, you know, it's always a process. Things are changing aesthetically. Do you think it's because I, cause I always wondered, I, I thought I'd heard, maybe it was David Arnold said this, but I can't remember where I'd read it, but because sound effects have gotten so good and sound systems and movies have gotten so good that now the, the, the film music has to compete with all these sound effects and, and that that maybe has influenced how film scores are being done now because they've got to, especially in action films and things like that, because they got to compete with all the sound effects. Is it? Well, that's true. And it's not just the sound effects, but it's the visual effects in the sense that the visual effects are so immersive and so spectacular, mm. don't need music to narrate what's going on because the visual effects used to be so uh, primitive that they were they were just sort of a, a really kind of lame approximation of what, what was actually meant to be on screen. You know, if you go back to like old things that obviously looked like models and, and uh, were so expensive that they only could afford a few shots and now uh, every shot is just so spectacular that you don't have the need or the room for 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 music to narrate what's going. It's it's much more about the visceral experience of being in the middle of whatever is exploding at any given time. So it's a different aesthetic, and it's not an aesthetic that needs music. And it's in fact an aesthetic where music can interfere and make the audience feel like something is fake. Very so it's good. complicated. There are many historical and aesthetic reasons and, and production reasons why things have changed uh, to, to be less interesting for my taste. But uh, I, try not to, I try not to spend too much time getting upset about it. Yeah, no, all good points, all good points. We're going to uh, end our program with a couple more of uh, Lucas's favorites from the Bond series. Uh, one from... Moonraker, Bond Lord to the Pyramid, which is another favorite of mine. That's a gorgeous piece of music. Uh, and then In Fight Flight from Living Daylights, which was uh, his swan song, I guess you might say, to the series. Um, two very different cues uh, in style and, uh, and what was being shown on screen at the time. Anything you want to say about those two cues in particular? Well, only that I, I really love them and... and um... John Barry was 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 really one of a kind, and he was a master. and And it was uh, it was too bad he didn't come back to the Bond movies. But I wonder if 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 the aesthetics had passed him by, <clears throat> because as he got into the last stage of his career, he became much more interested in sort of these long, slow, sad pieces of music, and he considered the Bond music kind of Mickey Mousing and almost beneath him. So I wonder if he even would have been suitable. But uh, I think the, the thing I like to explain about the Bond scores, and, and that really was John Barry's genius, is that if there's a fight sequence, he doesn't score the fight. He scores the idea of a fight, which mm. is the same thing. So even though it sounds very action-oriented, 
if you're watching the picture, he doesn't specifically catch a fist or a blow or a cut. I mean, he does rarely when it's essential. But for the most part, he's playing his own at his own pace and creating his own mood. Um, that it, it's very transformative, and it sort of creates this sense of theater that we're participating in this ritual of our hero who's who's invulnerable um, and yet threatened, and but we know in our hearts he's going to win, and it's a very comforting type of feeling. And then to do it in a way that is just so pleasurable to the ear and to have these chords that are just so interesting and so easy to un to 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 uh, to appreciate and then so easy to expect to hear again and so pleasurable when we do hear them. Uh, you know, he he was one of a kind in inventing uh, that sound world world and in figuring out how to use those jazz chords. Um, uh, in such a unique and memorable way. So it's, some, it's, it's, a, it's very sad that he's gone, and we're so lucky to have had him, and um, we're so lucky to, to, to have these movies and these scores. Yeah, no, that's beautifully said and really explained in a way that I, I, you, you're expressing kind of how I feel, but doing it in a way that makes a lot more sense than I could. That's, that's, that's wonderful. He, in, in his later years, he used to say, I'm not a film composer, I'm a, I'm a musical dramatist. And I think that's kind of connecting a little bit with what you were saying about how he would score a, a, a fight. He was looking at it almost from the, the character's point of view or of what was going on internally as opposed to what was going on visually. So that's, that's a great way to describe it.
Lucas, um, suffice to say this, uh, for years I had always wanted to talk with you because I was one of your first uh, early customers of FilmScore Monthly when it was a black and white mimeograph and uh, I've en- enjoyed following your career and, and have always been grateful for all the things that you've done for film music and it's a, been a real delight to have you on the program today. Uh, my thanks to you. I, I, I hope you've enjoyed it. I have. Thank you very much. And that's, that's you're, you're very kind. That's very sweet and nice to hear. I appreciate it. Uh, I, it's from the heart, believe me. I really do appreciate everything you've done. Folks, that's uh, going to wrap it up for this episode of, uh, of What's the Score. Uh, Lucas, uh, is. Uh, you can uh, see some of his work and his uh, website, Filmscore Monthly, is uh, still out there, right? Filmscoremonthly.com. It is, yes. And uh, anything else uh, in parting that we should be looking for or that we can find out more about you? I will, sh- I will surely think of it the second we're done recording. Probably, and then I'll just post it on our Facebook page. We, uh, What's the Score has a Facebook page, so you'll be able to find it there. Again, my thanks to our guest, Lucas Kendall. Only one thing left to say, and that's simply this. My name is Frank Wilson. My time's up. I thank you for yours. Thanks for listening to What's the Score.